Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel and I'm here today with my fabulous co-host, Anna Greta Hunter. And Anna Greta, today we have a conversation that I am really looking forward to, a discussion around an issue that will shape our future for generations to come. Yeah, Sharon, it's great to be with you too. And I know that for many of our listeners and for both you and I, Sharon, uh, our mind is very much on what's happening in Australia at the moment. In just a few weeks, Australians will be asked to vote on a First Nations voice to Parliament in a referendum that has deep implications for how we reconcile our past and how we move toward our future as a nation. It's a referendum that has deep symbolic meaning as Australians are asked to agree that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples be recognised in our constitution. This is recognition of the First Nations and of the deep knowledge, the care for and connection to country that has shaped this land for more than 60,000 years. But the voice to Parliament is more than just symbolism. It's a remarkable opportunity to lay the foundations for a country that is just and inclusive, for a future where respect and hope are embedded in our constitution, shape our institutions and weave together across our communities. Today, we have a wonderful guest to talk through what the First Nations Voice to Parliament means for our past, our present and our future as a nation. Professor Peter Yu is a Yaru man from Broome in the Kimberley. He's currently the inaugural Vice President, First Nations Portfolio here at the Australian National University. We're so privileged to have Peter as a colleague and as a leader here at ANU. Peter has more than 40 years experience in Indigenous development and advocacy in the Kimberley and at the state, national and international levels. Peter, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's really great to have you with us today in this very important time for Australia. Peter, you're part of the First Nations Referendum Working Group. I wonder if you could share with us the role that that group has played over the past year as we've moved towards the referendum that's taking place on the 14th of October when the Australian population will vote on that First Nations voice to Parliament. The Referendum Working Group is uh, made up of about 22 people of um, senior Aboriginal uh, leadership from across the country and we were invited to be part of the group so that we could negotiate with the um, with the Albanese government in respect to the uh, the specific propositions that we now see uh, in the uh, the questions to be asked uh, in the referendum on October fourteenth about um, the 
creation, well, first of all, it's the, the recognition as First Peoples and subsequently, by extension, the nature of the ability to, in, to, to um, manifestly um, recognise that recognition by establishing a voice to Parliament. Uh, the voice to Parliament, of course, is a very simple proposition um, where it will uh, provide advice to the government uh, and, the, and, the, and the Parliament and to the executive of the day in respect to policy matters relevant to First Nations peoples, and uh, of course, the Parliament remains uh, to have the the continuing authority in respect of the form, the structure, and the ability uh, in terms of the, the responsibilities of the voice to Parliament. So um, we have uh, arrived at a set of words. Um, there was uh, a senior experts uh, legal group of people, constitutional lawyers, uh, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders that uh, provided advice to the working group, not to the government. I think that's important to understand. It didn't provide advice to the government. It provided advice uh, to the Aboriginal working group uh, so that we were very clear about um, the nature of the the legal and the constitutional implications. And, uh, of course, uh, subsequent to that, there have been many senior legal minds uh, commenting on the, the nature of the limited capacity. So... Uh, the voice does not have a, a power of veto. It is not a, a, a third chamber of, of parliament. Uh, it can only advise governments on matters pertinent and relevant to Aboriginal policy interests. Peter, as we move towards the referendum, we've heard the, the comment that history is calling. But of course, this isn't the first time in our history that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have called for constitutional reform and for recognition, respect and and voice. I wonder if we could go back some decades and if you could talk us through some of those moments in history and what we can learn from those moments in history as we now think about the referendum on the 14th of October. Well, it it is a very long history. You know, it depends on how far you want to go back, I suppose, in it, but um, you can, people would be likely familiar with Day of Mourning um, from William Cooper, I think it was about 1938, in respect to the uh, question of uh, seeking to have um, Aboriginal people recognised in in this country. I think um, there have been various, I mean, you know, the, the, I guess, the 67 referendum is obviously a milestone, um, which is a form of recognition, but not really a form of recognition, because all it really did was um, allow us to be counted in the census. I think I found out the other day is quite interesting, some more of the technicalities of that, where, in fact, we were counted in the census before that, but then our votes, then we were discounted after the votes in referendums were, uh, were actually when the results were known because we the, the Commonwealth did not. So the 60th referendum gave the Commonwealth the authority to be able to count us. But isn't that kind of a bit strange that we were counted uh, in referendums and then we were... Uh, Aboriginal people were then discounted, and so, uh, as we know, also in the in the existing referendum clause twenty five of the constitution, there is a capacity for states to discount votes on the basis of race in any state elections. But going back to your uh, question, I suppose in, in more uh, contemporary times, the last three or four decades, I think in nineteen ninety five, there was a definite call for recognition by ATSIC. And subsequently to that, they have this process has, has embarked upon to where we've um, finally arrived at. But um, there were a number of uh, parliamentary committees, uh, the referendum councils, um, 
looking at this very specific question of recognition recognition of Aboriginal people. Of course, uh, during the um, uh, the Howard the nineteen was it nineteen ninety seven elections, um, John Howard himself um, discussed the question of a um, recognising Aboriginal people by way of some preambular statement. So there has has been significantly bipartisan support of. Uh, in relation to this in the last decades. And, of course, the coalition government, the conservative governments, have actually implemented a number of these uh, attempts to try and define better the nature of the recognition question. But I think we also have a history of advisory bodies. Um, You know, we go back uh, from 1976, 76, 77, uh, when the Fraser government... uh, established the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee and then that was done away by uh, the Hawke government in uh, when they came to power and then of course he initiated he set up the replacement body of the National Aboriginal uh, Conference I, I was actually an elected member of the National Aboriginal Conference in 1981 I got elected for the um, West Kimberley I think I was the youngest elected member but uh, and that was subsequently done away with in 1985 as well. And then, of course, you had ATSIC in 1991, 92, and that was then done away with um, several years later. So you've had various forms of representation and, and which have been really uh, ineffectual but because they've been subject to the political whims of both uh, colours of government. So I think what The Voice presents is an opportunity to consolidate this in a manner that which, by embedding it in the Constitution can't be easily dealt away with other than by another referendum. Peter, you, you noted that you know in that history of establishing advisory groups and then often abolishing them, you know, and, and very often at the whim of the government, we have seen some level of bipartisan support for the idea of constitutional recognition or some form of representation by Indigenous people. At this moment in time that is so significant, that bipartisan support has fallen away. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what it is that shifted that has meant that the coalition has has not felt able to support the, the current First Nations voice to Parliament. I, I think it's shifted when uh, the leader of the opposition said they were going to uh, oppose the voice to Parliament. I think until... Th- that time, I think that there was a, a sense of perhaps a degree of common interest for the nation in consideration of what the voice might look like and what its nature of its relationship with government would be. And it's, but I think once we introduced the, the question of politic into it by the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, rejecting the idea, I think that's when we've seen the kind of the, the vitriol and the kind of toxic toxicity and the nature of the debate um, arrive into this space. Um, of course, inviting out the very poor and baddest part that we have in our community in respect of the kind of uh, far right and the kind of racist views that we've now seen um, expressed in you know on a daily basis on social media. And uh, I guess it demonstrates that's not very far to the surface of uh, who we are, but in some ironic ways, really the question of why we actually need the voice so that we can actually move towards a greater sense of um, understanding what this common purpose is that we are seeking. Because I think mostly most Australians are wanting to see some change, to see some movement. I think people are pretty sick and tired of the fact that they're 
the, the Prime Minister gets up on an annual basis and, um, you know, talks about the closing the gap measures and uh, embarrassingly have to tell the nation that we haven't progressed very far at all uh, in any of the targets uh, that have been set in, by the, from the previous year. I think that's part of the problem. I think we've been caught up in the politics of the entire period where the – and that's, as I say, ironically, the, the reason and the purpose for the justification for the voice because we've been – we have been for too long as a minority the political football uh, in the nature of um, the way that the federal and state politics have been played out. We're a very easy target uh, because we uh, maintain an, a large degree of continuing ignorance and, as I say, um, you know, a cohort of um, seriously fortunate ideologues in respect to the question of race. I think the – we – if we look at the kind of demographics of the Productivity Commission says we're 85% of the population lives in the eastern seaboard and 85% of Australia is, um, you know, considered demographically as rural and remote. And so, you know, there are not many people living in that um, eastern seaboard or southwestern uh, area of WA who look over their backyards. So many people haven't met Aboriginal people. There has never been a very sense of personal relationship. And, and of course, we still have um, this... Uh, inadequate education system in respect to the the engagement of um, students at all levels uh, in our education system, understanding the nature of the colonisation and its impact and effect, understanding about the kind of the, the truth, the factual truth. I mean, there is this, we haven't ventured in a very serious way to educate our own population. Uh, we haven't ventured very clearly to encourage, through reconciliation and nature, a further dialogue and uh, exchanges of stories at a very local level, which I think is something critically missing in this debate. And, and it's something that we ought to uh, contemplate uh, post the referendum, irrespective of what happens in the referendum. I'm so optimistic we'll get up. But, but if we don't, then I think that we have to really take stock of where we are, where, where we are not, and who we are and what are the values of this country uh, as a supposed, you know, modern social democracy of the 21st century. I just think that we the we are seriously challenged by our inability to think beyond the nature of our self-interest. Peter, those toxic fringes of this debate really, to my mind, stand in stark contrast to the extraordinary generosity of the Uluru Statement, a statement which is described as a gift to the Australian people. From the long walk of the Wiradjuri elders, Jimmy Clements and John Noble in 1927 to the 1963 Yikala Bark petitions and today the Uluru Statement. I know you've pointed out that we have again and again seen Indigenous activists' respect for the institutions of governance and their willingness to work within them. How has that respect been maintained, particularly in response to some of the, the adversity, despite discrimination, despite dispossession? And what does that tell us, do you think, about how the voice will be implemented when it succeeds? Well, it tells us that we are Aboriginal people, a very unique group of people, uh, given the level of patience that we've had and under the enormous disadvantage and pressures that we've had to endure. I think one of the problems also, given that we, we're not, we, we haven't really come to terms with our history, people don't really understand the nature of the impact of trauma. I mean, just, you know, whether your views on settlement or invasion, the, the impact was absolutely brutal. It was brutal. There's no other way to describe it. You can't sugarcoat the fact that you come in, 
somebody else's country and land. You don't offer the respect. You you take what you want, uh, and you basically conduct yourself in a manner that decimates the kind of population to the extent that it has in Australia, whether that be through introduced disease, whether that be violent frontier behaviour, uh, whatever it is. There is violence in a dark side of the country that we fail to recognise, but Aboriginal people have endured it, so they have to, I guess, deal with the, the subsequent consequences of the uh, intergenerational trauma, but the broader Australia has to um, deal with it because uh, the manifestation of that intergenerational trauma is something which is in the face that we see every day on the media, this is what we see in the impoverishment, marginalisation. And these are not questions of um, apportioning guilt at any stretch of imagination. These are the, the, the fact of addressing the kind of factual nature of the, um, of, of the historical part of our relationship that's, that's forged this relationship. And so until such time as we uh, can move beyond this whole question, and Aboriginal people aren't asking for guilt. There's absolutely no way that people ask for guilt. You know, I've worked for a very long time in communities in my own area, in the Kimberleys and elsewhere, and, I, and yes, people are kind of – Aboriginal people are very respectful, and they there's no kind of sense of revenge. People just want the question of justice and equity and, and to be equity meeting to be apply what we purport to be the nature of our value sets that recognise the diversity, recognise the nature of um, opportunity, recognise the nature of contribution and participation, uh, all of those kind of things, when there are enormous hurdles um, for Aboriginal people to be able to get to a position where they can provide that. And I think, yes, there is frustration with the current uh, policy framework and historically that's been in place forever, broken promises, the nature of the, uh, the inadequacy of dealing with um, all of the known uh, phenomenon of youth suicide, uh, child and adult mortality levels, and, you know, incarceration, recidivism levels. I mean, I think people get a bit sick of hearing about that because they it becomes normalised and... But Aboriginal people are more sick about it because it's the, we're the ones who are actually dealing with that. I find it very perplexing, and I don't, I'm certainly no psychologist by any stretch of imagination, but I've racked my brains for many decades trying to think why is it in the Australian psyche that there's this inability to um, appreciate that something is drastically wrong? I think probably think it is drastically wrong, but, but somehow they, you know, um, through representation of governments, continue to perpetrate exactly the same things by offering solutions that aren't arrived at by any sense of uh, co-design, if you like, for want of a better word, uh, or, 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 or thought of or, or listened to by the voices of Aboriginal people who are actually going. Nobody else would, so why why should we? But yeah, it's 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 very disappointing and it's it's very tiring, you know where you're constantly coming up against the nature of a view of knowing better, of superiority, of uh, denial. You know, it is a burden on people on a daily basis, and I just, I just don't understand. Uh, I could give you a number of reasons, but I still wouldn't understand what it was. Peter, you've talked about 
the intergenerational trauma and so much of that trauma is linked to colonisation, which is part of the fabric of our history and it can't be wiped away and it can't be ignored. Here, as around the world, the damage and the pain of colonisation has been deep in the ways that you've just started to describe. Recently, and in the context of discussions around the voice, we've heard some very, what we might describe as sanguine interpretations of the impacts of colonisation that argue that those impacts have been minimal. I, I'd love to hear from you how you think we can start to have honest conversations about the impact of colonisation on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And Peter, I ask that question knowing that really these conversations probably should be led by non-Indigenous Australians, but I would love to hear your thoughts on them. I don't, uh, yeah, sanguine, I suppose. Well, I, um, being diplomatic, I suppose, but the, the, the question of denial is not unfamiliar uh, with Aboriginal people. I think that's part of the problem. I think part of the problem is that we haven't had the courage uh, to actually confront this. You know, yet it's embedded in, in Western kind of um, principles and value sets about confronting matters of untruth and um, working through the nature of conflict to an extent where you try and reach, at inverted commas, a civilised kind of settlement or outcome and where there is uh, some form of if not retribution, it's certainly not calling for retribution, it's but calling for more a question of demonstrating the nature of the sincerity of the, the act of reconciling differences. It's a basic, you know, it's, 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 it's evolved, you know, with, with mankind, humankind, that uh, we tell our children every day, we, we discipline or correct or guide our children in respect to the matters that aren't, of their behaviour and the behaviour in terms of um, matters that are uh, principally about someone being good, and fair, honest, uh, all those kinds of things. But yet, when it, if for some reason it doesn't apply to Aboriginal people, it applies to everybody else, but it doesn't apply to Aboriginal people. And I think that's the level of frustration that we have. But I think the way to address this, and it's because. I don't think politicians can address this, not the way we're currently structured here at the moment with the kind of two-party system. I think the way it has to be addressed is, has to be addressed by the community. It's got to be addressed by the community and and I think largely um, underwritten by the, by the corporate sector. Governments have a role to play with the right sort of intervention, but I think something of the nature of a national oral history project that uh, focuses on a, an ability for people to tell their stories. It might sound very uh, simple, certainly not esoteric, but, you know, if the government can spend $500 million on the War Memorial telling stories about how many Australians died unnecessarily in, in a lot of cases, you can tell the story of uh, our nation. And uh, if it was designed in a particular way with a methodology, and, and I think universities are a good place where this can start, and working through local government systems around the country, investing in ordinary Australians, um, if there are such things as ordinary Australians, engaged in local conversations where local governments could be responsible for facilitating the nature of that engagement. But it, it doesn't have to be just telling stories. It's a, it's a, It could be a significant investment in teaching people and skilling people up in relation to 
how they might document the story, the nature of interpretation, the nature of the kind of presentations. I can think of many different variety of skill sets that would be needed that could be of uh, ongoing benefit in a local community uh, of those stories and the uh, interpretation and manifestation of various products that arise out of it, whether it be the hospitality or tourism industry. People will be more proud of themselves. I think partly because there's this element of guilt which shouldn't be there, but it probably means that people are not necessarily – they're proud, but they don't know what they're proud of. And I think that, that you know, telling stories is about uh, people understanding each other and being proud that they are able to uh, make an informed judgment call about their relationships. And that, to me, I think is very important. So, you know, I, I seriously think uh, if this referendum uh, goes down, uh, I'm not sure. I don't think it can afford to go down, but I'm a, I'm I'm also very concerned about where some of this polling is, and I'm also concerned where we stand in the eyes of of the world. I know most Australians will say, "Well, I don't care what the world thinks. I don't care what the United Nations think. You can they can go and get stuff." And and it's an unfortunate attitude because it affects the nature of our diplomatic, our political, our economic relationships. Eventually, people sit up and take note about what's happening. They see they Australia's ability to get up in international forums and talk about the question of recognition of human rights, of diversity, and uh, while at the same time um, reflecting the entire contradiction of this when it comes to First Nations peoples. I think that that has – I do think it has an impact. I do think people think about it and they say, you know, whether it's China or whether it's um, Indonesia or whether it's some other – whether it's India – they hold the mirror up, and they will continue to do that because we, uh, um, we, we, globalization has exposed us. Together with the kind of whole social media phenomenon, we are much more accessible and um, much more open to commentary. It's a, it's a kind of double-edged sword, isn't it? Some ways, in some ways, the, the kind of um, uh, social media has driven the, in, a lot of the negativity in this campaign. While at the same time, it's also driven a significant amount of um, positive engagement and information flow. Peter, there is so much that I would love to unpack in what you've just said and so much that is deeply important to our identity as a nation and to our pathway forward. We're going to take a very short break and we will be back in just a moment to continue this conversation with Professor Peter Yu. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. 
Listeners, welcome back. We are here today speaking with the remarkable Professor Peter Yu, reflecting on the history of Australian colonisation and the remarkable opportunities that we're now confronted with as a nation, with the upcoming referendum on The Voice taking place in October. Peter, before the break, you offered a compelling case for the role of narratives and storytelling as a tool in reconciliation, particularly around the challenges of colonisation. And it really strikes me that this storytelling element is so important, both in understanding the Australian past and looking toward the future. Fundamental to storytelling is, of course, listening. And listening can't be undertaken unless someone has a voice. And to my mind, this is one of the most important parts of what's proposed in the referendum. I wonder if you could talk us through how and why you think the voice will make a difference at this time. Is it a tool that will help to close the gap? Does it change that narrative? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it would be unrealistic to think that the voice uh, will be the silver bullet or the panacea for all the things that currently ails us. But what it does do is presents us with the best opportunity, the first in forever, I think, in a way that it is able to, um, first of all, I mean, I think we, should, we shouldn't we should always see it as being a negative aspect in terms of a deficit approach towards relationship with government. There's an ability to affect change by engaging in a formal process as the way that we democratically do in this country uh, through policy and also through legislative reform issues. And I think that's a critical part of it. I think the part of it is that the the learnt experience to date has been um, hugely, uh, embarrassingly unsuccessful. I think, and, we've, and, and people are concerned about the enormous amount of money. So, I taxpayers should be concerned about it, and taxpayers should be concerned that there is accountability and transparency. While it's not all about money, it certainly is a way that can move if invested appropriately and if managed appropriately can uh, deliver a significant outcomes and result, not just for Aboriginal people, for the benefit of the community. And I think that's where the voice has great potential. I think the I've said publicly before that, you know, for every dollar that lives Canberra, it's roughly about 30 cents that actually hits the ground in the community. So what we have is a, a systemic nature of uh, operations that uh, underpin the codependency relationship between governments and Aboriginal people because it's a very convoluted system where the Commonwealth provides most of the investments via the various states and ter- territory agencies who then, of course, redistribute through their normal budgetary processes uh, and, and, and distribution to agencies for Indigenous-specific purposes. But if you think about, and this is not a criticism of public servants, I think it's just a systemic nature of the way this, the system operates, are those people who live, who you know, who, who take a tour of duty in working in remote and rural Australia in the north, or you know, in in the west of New South Wales, or or wherever wherever they might be? I mean, um, the, who's paying for the nature of their accommodation? Uh, I, I know from personal experience, having been a public servant in my very early days, running a welfare office up in Wyndham in, in the far north, Kimberley. You know, you had a car. You have to have air conditioning because it's um it's it's too hot uh, and humid. Um, so you have you, you get an air conditioning allowance. You get a you get a government car that's provided. The, the fuel's paid for. Um, you get subsidised rental. Uh, Aboriginal people are li- not living in these accommodations. The, these are public servants who live here. You get paid to go on a field trip. You get camping allowance. You go down south for training courses every couple of weeks. You get paid. Your airfare gets paid. 
you add up the dollars to that and you think about how heavily that uh, the, those agencies are subsidised to sustain a, a relationship which delivers very little impact on Aboriginal people. And you would think that if you were a business, you wouldn't, uh, you'd be highly unsuccessful. You'd be a failure. And so it is, in my view, a failed administration. Uh, it's failed governance and ultimately it's a failed state of affairs. And so I think the voice, to go back to your question, the voice has the potential to provide a greater sense of scrutiny and advice and purpose about how this might be done better. For instance, e.g., why don't you employ Aboriginal people who live in these regions? They're highly capable, competent people. Why don't you employ them? Uh, why don't you allow them? Because these people, the public servants, they're probably paying off their mortgages, whether it's one or two or three mortgages in Perth or Melbourne or Sydney or Canberra or or, or Brisbane, you know, on money that's largely, while they've appropriately earned it the right way, the, the kind of um, cost-benefit, you know, return isn't demonstrated by the current system. It's a failure. So nobody in their right mind would put money into that sort of a venture. And Australian taxpayers shouldn't be. They should be saying, well, we demand greater level of accountability. And But don't blame the victims. Don't blame Aboriginal people because we have absolutely no control of that. Challenge uh, the government. How many royal commissions have we had in the history of the country with the number of recommendations? And this is the other thing about the voice I think is important to. How many royal commissions have we had, um, usually uh, emerging through the kind of very degenerate, behaviour of uh, authorities uh, towards Aboriginal people where there have been multiple recommendations made about Aboriginal participation in decision-making, about greater res responsibility for Aboriginal people in terms of managing their affairs. So so I think that this is consistent with that. I, and I, the, the, my mantra really is about Aboriginal people owning the risk. We have to own the risk because this change is not going to happen in the current system and by um, governments or other people telling us what to do. It will never happen. We have to be responsible for our own matters that affect us. And the only way to do that is to have the ability to determine the various policies, uh, to be able to make the decisions that affect our people that we understand and are better than anybody else. So The Voice presents this opportunity to reframe the, the fundamental foundations of how governments work and how governments design policy and how governments um, implement programs uh, and, and where there is a greater sense of accountability and transparency between the, in, the, in the kind of federated arrangement between the Commonwealth and the states and territories. Peter, you've just outlined so powerfully what has failed, but also what needs to change in terms of decision-making policy making and the kinds of governance arrangements that we have in place. You've also done a lot of work around the economic empowerment of First Nations people um, and that relates directly to, to what you've just described to us. I wonder if you could just share with us a little more of your thinking about the ways in which the voice will contribute to greater economic empowerment for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and, and what that might mean if First Nations people had greater control over their economic as well as their political futures. 
Thank you, Sharon. That's a good question. I I think it's quite obvious for, for those of us who are involved, but obviously not for others. But uh, over the last four decades, if not more, Aboriginal people, you know, for various kinds of acts, such as the Northern Territory Land Rights Act of 1976, of course, the Mabo decision and the subsequent Native Title Act, has seen a, an, a change, significant change in the fundamental demographics in the sense that Aboriginal people now have a 60 to 70% plus interest directly or indirectly in the land assets across the nation. And across Northern Australia, that would be as high as probably 80 to 90% plus. So what this means is that, um, uh, you know, the sky hasn't fallen in, by the way, with the, Northern Ter- with the Land Rights Act and the, and the Mabo High Court decision and the subsequent Native Title Act. I mean, you can, you, you know, we can go back to the kind of hysteria that was created. I mean, even I think I've seen some press today about their kind of bringing back into play the that um, repugnant book on um, uh, Red Over Black, which is about this, you know, consp- by conspiracy theorists about the communists. Um, infiltration of Aboriginal interests and rights in Australia and, you know, back from the national land rights debate in the 1980s. So we have this enormous asset base that bodes well for future engagement and opportunity for Aboriginal people in the local and regional economy. But the problem is there needs to be a fair bit of investment, A, in building the governance and management capability in the corporations, because there's a new field of enterprise. But secondly, um, it's the question of available capital. And it's not just any capital. It's a question of the right sort of capital that we need to uh, have um, accessibility, access to, so that we can start to design and plan the business approach to activation of those assets. The the current uh, framework, and today the government um, launched their um, employment white paper and it's fairly typical as you would anticipate working in the Aboriginal employment policy space. Jobs are important, don't get me wrong. Jobs are important and training and jobs are important, but it's, it, is a, um, it is an area that has been tried and tested for the last, you know, 40-odd years and largely around kind of subsidised unemployment rates to community employment schemes or, or some other form of uh, subsidy, you know, um, like across northern Australia, we've got uh, about 900 to 1,000 uh, Aboriginal rangers, women and men who are out there looking after the country on subsidised wages. The opportunity really is to reframe this so that we take a much more creative approach to it, at which we've been doing here at the ANU. Uh, in June 22 last year, we ran an international symposium which showed there's an appetite for doing things differently uh, in this space. We had some international visitors from Canada, US, and also New Zealand. And we've subsequently followed it up by a six-part seminar series. So we're about to have our fourth one in October, the last in November. And from that will be a, a consolidated document of policy advice to the federal government about reframing the nature of this approach to economic self-reliance and self-determination. And in it is about how do we create uh, further opportunities for uh, Aboriginal participation economy through activating these assets. And so the the commentary and the research and input to date indicates that um, um, there is a an emerging uh, opportunity on grand scale for Aboriginal grand scale for Aboriginal people to become 
significant stakeholders and equity holders uh, in the in the in the developing and future economy, particularly in decarbonised economy. I mean, if you if you talk about the current debate about renewables, the importance of critical minerals, special minerals. If you talk about that, you have to ask yourself where where are you going to find that. More than likely, it's going to be on Aboriginal land. If you're talking about the question of processing, where are you going to do that? More than likely, on Aboriginal land. If you're talking about the ancillary resources, well, water's not really an ancillary resource. It's fairly critical. And um, uh, where are you going to find that? Likely on Aboriginal land. If you're wanting to look to improve your uh, employment levels um, without having the FIFOs fly and fly out, where, where can you focus that? You know, local communities that are surrounded by these activities. So there is no doubt that this is emerging because this this uh, moving towards renewables. There's two things moving towards renewables. Say, for instance, in the Pilbara at the moment, we've had um, you know uh, resource extraction uh, predominantly of uh, iron ore as the main commodity for the last sixty odd sixty odd years. Uh, and I just had lunch today with an ANU alumni who's um, working in a critical minerals company. And, uh, you know, he was telling me basically, you know, we're looking at the next 100 years of, of industry and growth in relation to lithium, vanadium, the mineral sands um, products that are going to be there if we're talking seriously about um, taking uh, off-grid come from fossil fuels into a renewable space. We're talking about another 100 years of, of growth and investment. And in the middle of this is Aboriginal people. And uh, so there has to be some um, reconciling and reckoning of what those opportunities are. So we've been pushing this agenda, I suppose, to say, look, um, we need to have structural change in the way that we deliver capital. We need, we do actually need access for capital. We do need positive government intervention by underwriting the nature of establishment of a capital fund that we can, that Aboriginal prescribed body corporates and, and enterprise can access. Uh, because at the moment, of course, there is no uh, the nature of the um, the expected returns from normal investment arrangements will 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 not be met by current standards because the you're working in a uh, an evolution and changing environment of of building capability, build, building confidence. But I think also, you know, climate change has brought a, a thinking of a different approach from investors, both institutional and also individuals of about climate change what what are the, what's the kind of it's no longer the bottom line of the kind of return it's about what is the future hold for my children or grandchildren uh, or the planet uh, and so sentiment slowly changing where people are saying what can we learn from aboriginal people about the nature of mitigation strategies what are the kind of um, you know cultural knowledge traditional knowledge and customary understanding about these matters and how can they be of some benefit. Aboriginal people have been living in this continent for 60 plus thousand years and have coexisted with this and uh, understand intimately the nature of the um, question of the ecosystems and biodiversity management and all of those kind of things. But we also need Western science married with uh, traditional knowledge to be able to get the best effect out of where we are because we obviously we can't go back 100%, but we need to Mitigation needs to comprise of some level of, of compromise in respect to how this is taken forward. So, you know, I'm hoping that the voice will be somewhat creative beyond just the existing policy framework of um, 
jobs and subsidised income into a more serious investment into the future of opportunities. Peter, I think we could listen to you talking about the importance of the voice and the extraordinary opportunity for Australia for, for many, many more hours, but we are going to bring the conversation to a close soon. You lead that First Nations portfolio here at the Australian National University, and you've been centrally involved in the university's work around reconciliation. I wonder about your thoughts about being within a university that focuses our mind toward the future, working as part of a team that's educating the next generation. I wonder how the voice will inform how we care for, educate and support that next generation of leaders. You've just been speaking about the extraordinary opportunity of learning from Aboriginal people, from Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous frameworks. And I wonder how we can begin to weave this more effectively into all that we do. Is this a remarkable opportunity from an educational perspective for universities and for people around the country? I think so. I mean, one of the reasons I came in the university, I'm not an academic and I don't come from university background, but I'm extremely encouraged by the nature of the um, the talent and the expertise of this and and the skills that we have here at the university. And, and you know, as a national university, we we have a, an inherent national responsibility. And and I mean, you know, when ANU was established in '46, it was part of the whole reconstruction campaign. In some ways, you could say that we we are currently um, that is still ongoing. We're still part of a reconstruction program because we're looking at an entirely new geopolitical economic environment, and uh, we're looking at a greater sense of appreciation, understanding of First Nation issues, not in Australia, not just in Australia but globally. I think the UN figures are Indigenous people make up about five percent of the global population, but yet control about eighty percent of the biodiversity. That just kind of indicates the opportunity. I think the 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 way, but there are other ways in which the university can contribute. I mean, I think the university can be leading the way. We should be shining our beacon down the pathway from the ANU, basically about what is this kind of where is where are we going? Where are we going collaboratively and collectively as a as a university that. Uh, uh, there are expect we are designed by and mandated by legislation, and there are expectations by people around Australia. Everybody knows, recognise the ANU's brand, and and understand. So we've got to be kind of a bit true to what we mean by national in the middle of in the middle of ANU. And I think we should be designing a particular modelling of where we could land with with the Aboriginal engagement in the economy. Uh, I think we we could be. Uh, at the forefront of um, looking at the various governance designs in respect to the nature of the post-referendum decision, how it's structured, I think we should, you know, we should have a role in that. I think an important area that's missed, which we don't have uh, here in Australia much at all, but something the universities could think about and contemplate, is identifying key change leaders and th- and thought leadership and real change leadership. We don't have people who are able to develop uh, have the skills in a transformational environment, which we, we, which we are currently at the moment. We're in a transformational period in the history of this country um, where we're looking to uh, face fairly significant challenges of um, where we are um, situated as um, players in the, in, the, in the global economy, in, in the geopolitical environment, in the whole question of mitigation, you know, not only Australia, but with our near neighbours um, in the Indo-Pacific. 
All of these things are very relevant questions, but what we don't have is we don't have people, and I think the current debate has shown that we don't have people who are able to bridge the gaps in relationships. We, we don't have creative enough trained people to, to tell us and to teach us about how we build the kind of the roadmap and the, the steps that we need to take along that roadmap to be able to achieve the particular milestones, identify what those milestones are as, as, as a country, as a nation. And I think that's what universities can do. I think it can it can help us to better define, better plan and better execute the nature of the kind of reforms. Um, you know, we have, um, sometimes we find ourselves working at odds. We all, we all want to achieve the same things, but we all have our own different kind of pathways that we, we should be seeking to develop a much more uh, intense collaboration uh, in the way that we scope the various responsibilities that we have. I think that area of change leadership, I think, is critical. We we haven't seen the whole nature of politics of change to become more divisive. We don't have kind of people who can talk through the complexity of the kind of muddied waters that we tread every day. We, we don't have people who can explain and uh, help to challenge us in the way that we go forward. It's, it's very much driven by self-interest, whether it be individual or collective kind of interest. It's very much driven by that, um, as we as is demonstrated on social media. So we don't have anybody who can... I think the last person that I think that I, um, in my lifetime, I think was someone like Paul Keating, um, uh, when, his go- when he was in government, I think that what he demonstrated in his uh, time as Prime Minister and, and even before that as Treasurer, um, the level of creative thinking about what it meant to, to 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 bridge the misunderstandings and to also to try and give greater definition to the kind of uh, cultural and value sets that we we have. That's my own personal opinion, but I, I do, having been involved in intimately in those uh, negotiations during that period of time, I could see somebody who was very conscious of the necessity to bring the country together. People mightn't have liked it because he was a very talented orator and um, and and debater. But um, if you put that aside, uh, the, the look at his uh, genuine needs and wants for the country, I think we haven't had anybody like that for a long time. But I think the university is a clearly underestimated place too. I don't think the community understands enough about what the university should be doing or could be doing. I don't think the government understands that uh, to a great extent. I think we've, the university has been let down significantly in, during COVID and post-COVID. And I think the community is not engaged with the university as a as an agent of change um, that they should be. And I think that we at the university need to really take some responsibility for that and change the way that we look at our relationship with the community. Peter, this has been a truly remarkable conversation. When Ada Greta introduced you, she said that we are so incredibly privileged to have you as a colleague and as a leader here at the ANU. I think anyone who is listening to this conversation will understand why we feel that way. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, for sharing that incredible vision and for your time today. Thank you very much, Sharon and Adam Gerr. Thank you. Anna Greta, that was one of those conversations that I am going to think about and reflect on for a long time to come. There were some really remarkable points that, that Peter made and the narrative that he weaves is really extraordinary. And it struck me as I was listening to him that the opportunity we have before us is so much deeper and so much broader 
than the debates that are currently playing out would lead us to believe. That vision that Peter shared would create an Australia that is democratic, that is socially just, economic and environmentally sustainable, and one that doesn't carry guilt for the past, but recognises that we must come to terms with it and move forward with a sense of our history and our future. And in a context of uncertainty and crisis that we are facing globally, very few countries have such an opportunity. And listening to Peter, I, I just think more than ever, this is an opportunity on October the 14th that we we simply must grasp with gratitude and with optimism for what it means for our future. Absolutely. It was an extraordinary conversation. It's actually one I'm going to come back to, I think, again and again, even after October the 14th and after we have a result for our referendum. Uh, I'm particularly struck by the importance of bringing the, the narrative and shifting narrative in the Australian context of understanding and deeply appreciating our history, both its trauma and its its extraordinary richness, particularly from the First Nations perspective. Um, and his comments at the end about the role of universities and the way in which we can take leadership in doing things differently and using imagination and a combination of imagination of science to really help define our future will we'll definitely be thoughts that we come back to. Listeners, this podcast is produced by ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed today on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about the podcast. We love hearing from you, our audience. So please do reach out to us on what used to be Twitter at ANU Crawford or through email on policyforumpod at anu.edu.au or look for us on LinkedIn. Our thanks to Hannah Scott for production and Darcy Brumpton and Alex Jackson for background research. That's all we have time for this week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week.